thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant and Chris Smith. Dr. Chris says, Anne, why is it that myself and I assume others have real difficulty with people touching my feet? I don't know what it is, but it turns me. With people touching certain bits of the body. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, why people have this? Um, in some people, it's certain substances of, or sort of textures stroking different bits of the skin. In other people, it's being frightened of physical contact with certain things. Some mm. people are frightened of contact even with liquids like water. Uh, people who get rabies get that, for example, hydrophobia. Really? But, yes, one of the common features of rabies when people are in the sort of third stages of rabies is that they become very fearful of water. And no one knows exactly why that happens, but it makes people feel ragingly thirsty because they're dry. But when, when they get near water, they're terrified of it. And it's all part of the fact that rabies invades the nervous system and makes you go mad. But no one knows exactly why. But exactly why someone should be frightened of someone touching their feet, I don't know the answer. I think because it's a psychological problem, it has to be something to do with that individual. And it might be that there was some experience back earlier in life where some association between something bad happening and someone touching someone's feet could have triggered it off because you sometimes see that. When something bad happens and something else is happening at the same time, sometimes in your brain, your brain connects the thing you were doing when the bad thing happened and, and assumes they must be linked because usually they are, but not all the time. And this can sometimes lead to these sort of abnormal connections between cause and effect leading to people to become fearful of certain things. I wonder if that's involved here. Mm. Uh, an early warming sy- system that we have built into us, it seems. An early warming system? An early warning system, that's what I meant oh, no. to say. <laughs> um, we've got another question coming up. Um, can you ask Dr Chris how they will break my bottom jaw when I have it realigned? It's too short. Um, are they using bolts, etc.? Thanks from Gary. The kind of surgeons who do this and the people who operate on your face are called maxillofacial surgeons. They're actually people who have to train in dentistry usually first and then they do their medical degree as well. They are very clever and they have some very, very funky tools at their disposal, but they effectively have a very powerful saw and it's very, very similar when you do, say, joint replacements on the hip. Um, When you want to do a hip replacement, you cut off the top of the femur, the long bone in the leg, drill a hole down the middle of the long bone there's already a hole there but it's mainly bone marrow and you need to get that out of the way and then you prod the hip replacement down inside the bone and glue it in place now it's very similar when when you do other bony uh, operations you use various saws and drills and things to cut through bone because bone is incredibly tough and it, you don't go into the operating theater and someone sort of gives you a, a smack around the face to break your jaw they actually do it slightly more carefully than that and so it involves making physical cuts um, and then once they have got the jaw manipulated into the right place what they will do is to fix it by putting things usually bits of metal but other 
prostheses can sometimes be used as well. These are fixers which are screwed into the bone on either side to hold everything in the right place relative to itself. And you try, if you need to open a big space between the, the bones, you try and pack the gap with some other bits of bone or some other graft material which encourages bone to grow because if you just separate two bones and don't connect them physically, then there's no way for the bone to regrow across the gap and get, and get the connection made. So you try to put something there to enable the bone to form a sort of template so that, that then it can remodel itself and, and lay down new bone. That's why it's important when you fracture a bone to have it reduced. You pull the two bony ends apart so that they, and then fixed into the right place so the two broken ends oppose each other and then they can heal. Normally a blood clot forms and the blood forms a template for the bone to regrow in. So that's what they'll do with Gary's jaw. I don't know whether he wanted to know all that. <laughs> it sounds pretty scary to me, all those bolts and things, but he'll be asleep anyway. Gary, good luck with that, and uh, we wish you all the best. Now, we've got Alan on the phone, I believe. Hello, Alan. Hello, Sue. Hello there. You're through to Dr Chris. Thanks very much. Um, it's about the central nervous system, which you mentioned earlier, actually. The situation is, if you're laying in bed and you lay on a, even the smallest grain of sand, you can feel it right to pinpoint it. Uh, I, I want to know how the system works how does the skin feel that the other thing is that i'm a diabetic and i take injections into the stomach and many occasions when i'm doing that i can actually feel the same feeling in my shoulder as i'm actually putting a needle into my stomach and the final thing what is neuropathy and is it reversible okay well three very good questions alan let's take them in turn first of all how does skin actually feel something or feel the presence of things rubbing or touching against it well that's a good question let's let's look at that first so if you zoom in on a patch of the skin then every patch of skin on the body is supplied by the nervous system so there are sensory nerves running through it now there's different classes of sensory nerves there are those which are very very small and they're pain fibers and they fall into two categories they're called c fibers and a delta fibers and they have a very high threshold you have to put a lot of force into the skin or damage the skin physically to trigger those nerves to start firing impulses so they signal pain and they also signal temperature and usually that's temperature which is burningly hot or burningly cold then there is a bigger class of nerve fibers and when we say bigger i'm talking something in the range of between six micrometers so that's six thousandths of a millimeter and about twenty thousandths of a millimeter and these nerve fibers supply specialized endings in the ner in nerve endings in the skin which if you look at them carefully some of them look a bit like an onion with lots of different layers and what this does is when you run your finger over a surface for example the rippling effect or the pressing of the surface the vibration of your skin touching that surface compresses these layers of the onion spring and these are transmitted to the nerve ending and the st stimulation to that nerve ending causes iron channels these are little pores in the membrane of the nerve cell to open up and this allows charged particles, ions, to flow into the nerve and out of the nerve, and this triggers off what's called depolarization. It makes the nerve become excited, and it fires off nerve impulses to the brain. So your brain knows where on the surface of the body that nerve supplies, and therefore why, where, where in other words, to refer the signal to. So it knows that the, fin the finger, for instance, is touching something, so it knows where on your body it's happening. And it knows how hard the effect is because it can it can count how many nerve pulses arrive back in your brain or in your spinal cord and the number of pulses it corresponds to the intensity of the signal and also you can you can use how bigger an area of the body is being affected to also work out partially how intense the signal is so you get very good information about where on the body it's happening what sort of stimulus it is if it's vibration 
if it's thermal, if it's cold, hot, that kind of thing, if it's chemical as well, because the, the burning sensation of chilies also activates these, these tiny nerve fibres. They're relayed back to the spinal cord, and the spinal cord then sends the information up to your brain, and so you can work out wh- which bit of your body to pay attention to. Now, there's a, a process called adaptation, and this comes back to Alan's question about sand and bits of things that say get in your shoe if you've got a stone in your shoe and you notice it very very annoying but why aren't you conscious of all your clothes on your body for example or your underwear or physically wearing shoes and this is where the nervous system gets used to the constant presence of a certain stimulus so I'm wearing clothes at the moment even though I might be the naked scientist and you get used to the fact that there are presence of of stimuli all over the body and you stop paying attention to them so when something new comes along you can pay attention to it and that's got a protective effect because if you were trying to pay attention to all of the stimuli that are arriving in your body all the time then you would be overwhelmed it would be sensory overload and there's a danger you might miss something very important so by having your attention focused just on one tiny bit of your body which is going wrong it makes sure you pay attention to it. And that stone in your shoe, especially if you're diabetic, can be a major problem because if you're diabetic, you can have part of Alan's other question, which was neuropathy, which is that raised sugar levels in the blood seem to cause some nerves, especially those that, that correspond to pain, to stop working properly. So people with diabetes have to be very careful with their footwear because they can get blisters that they don't notice they're getting. Or the stone in the shoe can rub a hole in the bottom of the foot and this can be very problematic because the wound doesn't heal very well because people with long-standing diabetes have to be careful because the, their healing is slowed down. And also, if you've got a hole in the bottom of your foot, you can get infection. And people with diabetes are more prone to long-lived infections. So there's lots of reasons why it's important to pay attention to that stone in your shoe. Now, to, to go back to the second question, which was, Alan said, when he injects insulin, he puts it into his stomach and he feels pain in his shoulder blade. This is quite common, actually, and it's referred pain. And this, this is related to the fact that some nerves supply some bits of the body and they also supply other bits of the body at the same time. And you can therefore get cross-talk. So the bit of the body you're stimulating will also think it's being stimulated where else, wherever else that nerve goes. So the reason that you get pain from your abdomen going to your shoulder blade is because the phrenic nerve, which is the nerve that controls your diaphragm and also has signals running into your liver and things, comes from the high spinal cord. And that patch of the spinal cord also supplies the skin around your shoulder blade. So you, you can find that you can get pain referred from down in your abdomen, in your liver area, up to the shoulder. And people who have gallbladder problems, if they have gallstones, for example, some people say that they, they get the pain of gallstones where their liver is at the top right of their abdomen, but also in their shoulder blade. And surgeons will often ask people, do you get pain anywhere else? And if people say that, it's usually a good giveaway. So I think that's kind of wrapped up Alan's three questions. Thank okay. you very much. All right. Really spot on. Thanks very much. You're welcome, Alan. Bye-bye. Bye. And Dr Chris with me here. We have Richard on the line. Hello, Richard. Hi, Sue. You're through to Dr Chris. Hi, Chris. I was wondering, you often hear about um, Einstein's theory of relativity and how... Uh, the speed of light is as fast as you can, as anything can go. But does it actually explain why that's the fastest anything can go? As far as we know, light seems to be able to be the fastest thing in the universe. Mm. And the speed of light in a vacuum is 
three times 10 to the 8 meters per second, so 300 million meters every single second, or, to put it another way, about a billion kilometers per hour. So it's pretty fast. Yeah. Uh, if you put light into other media, though, it will slow down. So when light travels from, say, traveling through the Earth's atmosphere into water, it will bend because it slows down. When light hits the Earth's atmosphere from space, it slows down a bit. But interestingly, when it goes out of that more dense medium, like water, back into air again, less dense, then it speeds up again. So light's a very interesting beast. No one exactly understands how Einstein's equations precisely work in terms of um, what, they, what they imply for the structure of the universe... But that doesn't mean that we won't find out one day. What we are pretty happy about, though, is that the speed of light does seem to be the absolute maximum that we can achieve. And we can't achieve it unless you are light. So nothing can go faster than light. And as you go faster and faster and faster, uh, as you say, E equals mc squared is Einstein's famous equation. So the energy E is equal to the mass of something times the speed of light squared. So as you go faster... Your, in other words, you're getting closer to the speed of light, then the amount of energy you need to accelerate you gets bigger and bigger and bigger and tends towards infinity. So, in other words, you'd need an infinite amount of energy to make yourself go any faster. So that's why we think there's a theoretical maximum. But exactly why that number should be the number it is, I don't know. Oh, well, I, I'm glad I hadn't missed anything. I, I couldn't think of why it should be, but I'm glad no one else can. I never actually thought about it in those terms, like, you just accept that the speed of light goes at the speed of light, so why should it be that number? And it's never actually sort of occurred to me to wonder why it should be that speed, so I think I'll have to go and look, look and see what people think is the reason why light has that finite speed at the speed it does. Why, yeah. why, what's, so, what's so magic about the number 3 times 10 to the 8 metres per second? I don't know, it's an interesting question. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thanks a lot. Thank you, bye-bye. Bye. Now then, Chris, next, Ken in Hockley asks, um, with flower bulbs, why is it when you plant the bulb it is white and when it sprouts it is green? Well, that's because the bulb is the storage structure. So there are certain kinds of plants which store a lot of energy in their root system. And a potato is the obvious example, tubers. And what the tuber is, what the potato, the thing we like eating is, is starch. And the way plants store energy is in the form of starch, and starch is a big polymer of the molecule glucose, in other words, sugar. So when plants are in sunlight, the leaves contain the molecule chlorophyll, and chlorophyll is a, is a special molecule which can help the plant to photosynthesize. In other words, it uses the energy in sunlight to drive the chemical reaction where it takes CO2 out of the air, mixes it with uh, some water, and the result of that is some oxygen and a sugar molecule. Now, sugar, glucose, is quite hard because it's chemically active. It's quite hard to keep in one place, and it's also quite hard to stop it reacting with things, and also it attracts water to itself, so it's quite difficult for cells to pack lots of glucose in without swelling up. So the plant wants to deal with that problem, and so what plants do is to turn glucose into the polymer starch by linking lots and lots of glucose molecules together, and starch is a big branched polymer. And it's also less soluble. As you know, your potatoes don't dissolve if you put them in the saucepan in some water. They just soften. Now, usually it it's, pays plants to put the starch in one place. So all cells have a little bit of starch, but if you're a plant like a potato or a bulb, it's useful to be able to put the starch in one place because then it's easier for it to be remobilized when the plant wants to grow again in the spring. So in the case of a potato, all of that starch, which or the glucose, which is made in the leaves, is shipped down inside the plant's vascular system because plants have a system called phloem, which enables them to transport molecules throughout the plant. That's why if you add weed killer to the leaf of one side of a plant, then it will go and kill the other side of the plant because these things can travel systemically. Well, the plants move all the glucose from their leaves down into their roots or their bulbs 
and they then polymerise it to starch down there and produce this big tuber in the roots. And it stays there in this safe, inactive form until they want it again, and then they use enzymes, which are called amylases, because another word for starch is amylose, and the amylases chop up the starch molecule, re-releasing smaller molecules, including glucose, which the plant cells can then burn off. Now, when a plant wants to grow, of course, it needs to replenish the starch, in other words, the glucose that it's burning off, and the only way it can do that is by photosynthesising, which it needs chlorophyll to do, and chlorophyll is green, which is why when the plants start to grow again, they produce green shoots, which can capture the sunlight and then capture CO2, bit of water, turn out more sugar. Off you go. I must water mine when I get in. You just reminded me. Now, our next question um, comes from John, and he wants to know what Chris's views are on checking up for prostate cancer, even when there are no apparent symptoms. Is it worth men having a checkup these days? Is this service on offer? I think it is, because prostate cancer is probably one of the most under recognised in terms of its importance conditions. Um, it probably will worry some people to learn that by the age of 80, about 100% of us blokes have probably got some signs of prostate cancer in our prostates. It's very, very common in other words, but the vast majority of people actually don't die of it. They just die with it. They die of something else, old age, mm. but most of them die with some signs of prostate cancer. But there are some people who get it much, much younger. And for that reason, it is worthwhile taking it seriously. And, and I think this is where the NHS hasn't been doing a very good job for us guys for many years, because... Women have their health very well looked after because they're screened for cervical cancer, they're screened for breast cancer, and also other people have suggested there should be a screening test for ovarian cancer. But if I add together the deaths that occur in the UK every year just because of cervical cancer and ovarian cancer, I don't even get to half the number, which actually is the number of men who are dying of prostate cancer every year, mm. or at least the number of active serious cases of prostate cancer. So it's very common. And the problem with it is that men are not very good at getting their health checked over. Us guys tend to be much more stoic and we don't come into contact with doctors so often because women have other reasons to go to the doctor mm. for the screening programs we've mentioned, also for contraceptive advice or for having children. So it's much more likely that women's health will be taken seriously during their life, whereas our, us guys just go through life and don't see a doctor until we keel over. Now, in terms of getting something done about it or getting looked after, people are beginning to get more aware about this. And I mean the medical profession as well as the average person in the street. And because people are beginning to focus their attention on it, there have been various studies done now to look at ways to diagnose it better. Now, a couple of weeks ago on The Naked Scientist, we had a report from um, Cancer Research UK where about seven or eight new genes have been uncovered in people who tend to have an increased risk of getting prostate cancer. So now scientists are beginning to wonder whether we could use combinations of genes to look in people to pinpoint those who are most at risk. So mm -hmm. that's something which is sort of in the pipeline. In terms of what we can do now, for the last few years, people have been studying a chemical called PSA, or prostate-specific antigen. And this is a, mo a sort of biomarker, a molecule, protein, which is produced by cells in the prostate when they are turning malignant. So that most people will have some of, the, of this PSA in their bloodstream quite naturally, but the number or the level tends to go up if some people have a malignancy or if there's some prostate cancer. Now, the problem is that because it's also there in normal people, it's very hard to tell who's a normal person and who's a person with cancer. So there's this sort of grey area between those people who are healthy and have it and those people who are unhealthy and have it. And this has meant that uh, it's very, very difficult to use this as a very accurate test because otherwise you'll be worrying the hell out of people unnecessarily sometimes. Mm. That said, 
um, there are programs for screening, and especially in America, people are screened more carefully, and they have a combination of a test for PSA, prostate-specific antigen, plus they'll go and have things like digital rectal examination, because the best way to, to examine the prostate is by digital rectal examination. You actually insert a finger, and the doctor can feel the contour or the profile or shape of the person's prostate, and sometimes if there is something amiss, that can be noticed. But also ultrasound scanning, a probe can be inserted which can look at the prostate, and it can look for any signs of anything that's amiss and if caught early that carries a better prognosis so there's that too the numbers the sort of numbers of cases and how people tend to do according to these different management approaches in america people who are diagnosed with prostate cancer seem to live longer than people who are diagnosed with it in the uk now that could be interpreted in two ways it could be that they're just very good at treating it in america but there could be another interpretation and it could be what's called lead time bias now if you're diagnosed with something five years sooner than you were going to get it diagnosed here, then you live with the disease for, for five years and still die at the same time, but it will look like you've lived longer. And that's what people think might be going on in America. People are just picked up sooner, but the early pickup doesn't actually affect their ultimate prognosis. On the other hand, we don't actually know. It could be that by picking people up earlier, we can make a difference. So at the moment, the jury's out, but I think people are taking this seriously, and I think it is worth us guys taking our health seriously and, and getting checked. And once you get beyond the age of about 40, 45, then when you go for other things like blood pressure checks and that kind of thing, it's worth inquiring with your doctor, especially if there's a family history, because these kind of things tend to crop up in families. It's worth inquiring and, and having them check you out and just keep an eye on, the, on, on things, because very often it's a departure from what's normal for you. So if you have a blood test, for example, and it's stable for many, many years and then suddenly changes that can be useful information and it can tell you something's on the move and you ought to have a, a more thorough going over but it's certainly certainly something to consider because the number of cases every year is in the region of about 30,000 in this country so it is serious and it is common and it is generally overlooked um as a woman very often you're the one who makes the appointment for the man who's refusing to go to the doctor because again no no i'm all right i'm all right so how can a partner recognize a symptom you know for prostate cancer the problem with it is that, like many cancers, you don't get symptoms until it's quite serious or it's quite advanced. And the other problem with the prostate is that as we get older, it tends to get larger naturally anyway. And this is called benign prostatic hyperplasia. In other words, an increase in the number of cells and the size of cells. And this is why people who get older tend to have more problems with going to the loo. They mm. can't get started or their bladder gets large and they have to get very big pressures in the bladder to get the urine out. And that's because the prostate gets bigger and bigger and bigger and because the prostate surrounds the urethra, the tube from the bladder out to the outside world, as the prostate enlarges, it squeezes on that tube and sh shuts it off and so you have to have a higher pressure to get the urine out. Now, that can mask signs of tumours in the prostate and people can write themselves off as, oh, everyone gets this, it's called old man's disease, mm. and as a result, it's just nothing, and, and you can ignore it for a while, and that can, can then cause problems, because actually it's down to something else, more, more sinister going on. But to return to your point about how can partners help, well, I think encouragement here, there was a big drive on the part of the government 10 years ago, 8 years ago or so, to try to raise awareness about testicular cancer, because this tends to affect young men, late teens to about the age of 30, so the first half of the 20s mainly. And that's gone up an enormous number, about 100% increase in number of cases. And there was a big campaign on the part of the government where it was encouraging the partners of young men to feel them. So when you're in an intimate clinch or you're in the shower 
do an examination on your partner and alert them to the fact that that doesn't feel right, love, mm. and try and encourage them to go to the doctor because mm. early pickup can make a huge difference. If you detect these things early, and, and sometimes it's just a very subtle change can, can make you get suspicious, then you can do much more about it and the, the outcome is likely to be much better. Sure, and of course, uh, you know, you'll have the support as well of somebody who loves you. Right, okay, let's get on to our next question. Um, Agnes says, um, do you scientists know whether the solar eclipse that was happening or, or has happened was visible? I think it was a lunar eclipse, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was a lunar eclipse, and, and I was asking Ben, who helps to make our show, about this today, and he said it happened at 3 o'clock in the morning. Now, as I went to bed at 2 o'clock in the morning, I missed it, but it, it certainly should have been visible, because what you should have seen is the uh, Earth getting in the way of the light, light from the sun hitting the moon, illuminating it, so you're seeing a little nibble coming out of the side of the moon there. So, yes, you should have, you should have been able to see that. Right, restless leg syndrome, is there any treatment for the relief of it? Restless leg syndrome for people who have it is a real pain and it tends to occur when people get tired. It's also linked to pregnancy. Some women who get towards the end of their pregnancy, the last trimester, can get it. And also people who get anemic, don't have enough uh, red blood cells, they can also be at risk from it. And there are certain medications, some anti-seizure drugs and some, uh, say, anti-itching and anti-hay fever type remedies can sometimes also, and anti-nausea remedies can also trigger it. Um, it's an annoying, irritating and unpleasant sensation as though you need to keep moving your legs. It tends to be associated with tiredness, tends to, to occur later in the day and can keep people awake paradoxically. And it's this very intrusive sensation of not being able to sit still. People find it very distracting. And it, it's unfortunate that we don't really understand precisely why it happens and it seems to be a lifelong condition people who get this tend to have it for forever unless they've got one of these reversible causes so the key ways to tackle it are to see have you got one of these causes i just mentioned if you have and it can be dealt with so if you've got kidney failure or diabetes perhaps improving the function of the kidneys or improving the control of the diabetes can make a difference. But if you've got one of those other things like pregnancy or you're on certain drugs that's triggering it, then stopping the changing those can make a difference. There are also other ways to try and handle it, and there are some drugs which have shown some benefit. Um, some of the anti-seizure or anti-epilepsy drugs have been tried, and in some people they do work. There's also a drug called ropinirol, which is used in America and seems to be successful to, in, in a minority of patients. But unfortunately, it's a difficult condition to manage, and it's also a difficult condition to understand. We really don't know that much about why it, why it occurs in the people who get it. Right, thank you, Chris. Um, Malcolm asks whether you think using the mind can banish pain. OK, well, the interesting thing about pain is that obviously your brain is where you process pain, and if you don't have a brain, you can't feel pain. And scientists for the first time a couple of years ago managed to see the placebo effect in motion. Now, people say, well, it, does the placebo effect really exist? This is where you tell someone something's going to happen and they believe you and they feel better. So if you give them a tablet, it's just sugar and they're in pain and you say, this is a painkiller, it'll make you feel better. Then uh, very often, the, most people will say that they get some degree of pain relief. And there was a group of researchers in America who did a very clever study where they got people, volunteers, funnily enough, because they subjected them to intolerable pain, but they got these volunteers and they rigged up a, a needle which was injecting the muscle of their cheek, the masseter muscle. That's the one where if you clench your jaw and feel the side of your face, you can feel this big oblong muscle holding your jaw upright, tense. That's your masseter. Well, they injected uh, at, a, at a constant rate a solution of potassium into that. Now, potassium injected into a muscle is incredibly painful. But because you get used to pain, what you have to do is to keep the pain constant, you have to increase gently 
the amount or the size of the injection. So they had this system rigged up where they had volunteers who were getting this injection continuously into the side of their face and the injection was increasing in amount over time to keep the level of pain that the patients were, were experiencing constant. At the same time, they had the patients in a brain scanner and they then said to them, right, in a second we're going to inject you with this liquid and they had a cannula in their arm and the liquid was water, but the patients didn't know that. And they said to the patients, this is going to deaden your pain. It's a very powerful painkiller. And as they injected it, in the brains of these patients, they saw the parts of the brain that secrete all of the brain's natural morphine-like chemicals. These are things like beta-endorphins and enkephalin. These are the brain's natural morphine-like chemicals. They saw those areas become very, very active. So the brain started to produce its own morphine-like chemicals. And at the same time, the patient said oh, I'm feeling much better. And they could see they were definitely feeling better because the pain signals in those bits of the brain got less. So this suggests that that's how the placebo effect occurs. It's mediated or controlled through the release in the brain of your own natural morphine-like chemicals. And in all these patients, they were then able to turn up how much potassium they're injecting into their muscles by a factor of 30%. So the people could handle 30% more pain and they didn't think it was that much more painful. So I strongly believe in the placebo effect and the idea that there is a, a capacity to do mind over matter. So I think it's very, very true. And I think also this is probably part of the reason that some people feel more pain than others, why some people have a different pain threshold. Perhaps the level at which their brain secretes these natural morphine-like chemicals is set at a different level in some people than in other people. Mm. OK, right, we've got Eddie on the line. Hello, Eddie. Hi. What's your question, well, Dr Chris? Well, as I can, I'm approaching my 75th birthday uh, when I reached the age of 71, after a very fit and active, never-ill life, I suddenly contracted rheumatoid arthritis, and I've been treated for it for the last four years. And with all the people I come into contact with who suffer from it, they all tend to be getting overweight. And now I've gone the other way. I'm down to six and a half stone. I just wondered what I could do about it, because I eat like a horse, but I can't put anything back on again. I'm sorry to hear about that, Eddie, and it's, it's unfortunate because a lot of these autoimmune diseases, because rheumatoid arthritis is where your immune system attacks the cartilage tissue in the joint and the progressive inflammation damages the joint and that's why you tend to get stiff, especially hands, elbows can be affected, neck can be affected and, and some of the other joints in, in the back, for example. But the reason a lot of people who have rheumatoid arthritis tend to gain weight or at least they appear to gain weight is because in days gone by, the only real drugs we had that made a difference in this condition were steroids, yeah. so methylprednisolone. And patients love that because it very quickly gets control of the disease, but the problem is that it does other metabolic effects to the body and it causes fat to be redistributed on the body and it tends to cause muscle wasting in the arms and legs and it causes lots of fat to build up around the tummy and around the face so you tend to get a quite a fat face and a fat tummy and thin arms and um, it, medical textbooks talk about it almost like a, an orange or a lemon with cocktail sticks stuck in for arms and legs is how people who are on very high doses of steroids go so it can it can give the impression of, of weight gain but in fact it's redistribution of fat around the body yeah. in your case I don't know why you're, you're losing weight and, and I think it might be worth mentioning this to your doctor because obviously keeping a, a good body weight and a healthy body weight is very important at any age let alone just when you're older and rheumatoid doesn't necessarily cause people 
to lose weight. So I think you should get that checked out. Dr. Chris, what are the pros and cons of having a nose reshape operation and what is the average price? I'm not a plastic surgeon, but a rhinoplasty, which is the posh name for a nose job, um, can be very expensive. Depends who you go to. If you're Michael Jackson, I should think the bill runs to the length of your arm, actually, Mm. or or even longer. Um, But the pros and cons of it are uh, most people have a nose that works perfectly well and serves them brilliantly. And the purpose of having a nose is to help you to smell things. Uh, But some people, unfortunately, have problems with their noses, uh, either they believe their nose is bigger than they want it to be or it really is a bit big because as a variant of normal some people have a big nose and it can be changed in terms of its shape and structure to make it so that it's more in keeping with what you would prefer as an individual and the way it's done is that plastic surgeons, facial surgeons um, remove small amounts of bone and other tissue and cartilage to reduce the surface, the actual amount of area of the nose and then the, the excess skin is removed and then stitched in and you tend to place all your stitching in places where there are natural folds in the skin so you can't see where the work has been done and the people I know, patients who have had this done because they have felt that they have a nose which is too large uh, are, are delighted very often um, but it can be expensive and it's, it's cosmetic surgery I mean it's very rare where you'd have something like this done because there's actually a medical indication Times when there are medical indications, of course, are if there's been a very bad accident. If you had your nose caved in by, a, say, a car crash or something like that, for example. Sometimes cancers, if you get cancers on the nose, and there's certain types of cancers called rodent cell ulcers or basal cell carcinomas, which are uh, cancers that tend to stay in one place, but they eat away at the tissue and they're caused by sun exposure, they can be very disfiguring. So if you've had that and you need a nose job to repair the tissue of the nose, that can give you back your, your confidence and your looks. And also burns, of course, if you've had very bad burning to the face this can cause the nose to be sometimes completely destroyed and it needs to be rebuilt and there are certain infections not so much these days but in the old days people who had syphilis tended to get this funny bridge or or saddle-shaped nose where their nose collapsed in on itself um, because the syphilis bug was eating away at the tissue in the nose. So sometimes you see people who have funny infections that cause damage to the surface and structures of the face and they need repairing too. So it's not just people being vain. Sometimes Mm. it's people actually having serious psychological issues and other times it's people actually having physical problems with with the actual shape and structure of their nose. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 